I'm Kelly Llewellyn. And I'm Greg Homme. And this is Caveman. And Counselor. Well, okay. Welcome back to Caveman and Counselor, the podcast where we explore the intricate connections between mental health and human experience. I'm Greg Homme, your dedicated behavioral health advocate, and joined, as always, by insightful marriage and family therapist, Kelly Llewellyn. Well, it's great to be here, Greg, and today's episode is particularly close to our hearts and also my brain. Mm -hmm. Um, We're going to dive into the world of neurosurgery, a field that touches lives in a profound and often personal way. Um, As many of our regular listeners know, I recently underwent a a significant uh, neurosurgical procedure, and it seemed to be okay. That's right, Kelly, and today we have a privilege of hosting a very surgeon who is at the forefront of that operation, Dr. Vikram Udani. Udani is not just an accomplished neurosurgeon, he's a pioneer in his field, known for his innovative techniques and compassionate approach to patient care. Yeah, you know, neurosurgery is a realm that intersects with behavioral health in many ways, from the psychological impact of neurological conditions to the mental preparation required for both patients and the surgeons before entering the operation room. Yes, Dr. Udani's experience goes beyond the technicalities of surgery. He brings in a holistic view, understanding the emotional and mental journey of his patients, which is essential to the process of healing. Yeah, just an all-around nice guy. So in today's conversation, we're going to explore the advancements in neurosurgery, the challenges faced in the operating room, and the psychological effects of neurological care. Dr. Udani will share his insights and experiences, offering a unique perspective on how this field is evolving. Yeah. So grab a comfortable uh, seat. Uh, prepare your favorite uh, non-alcoholic drink for your brain and join us for an enlightening conversation with Dr. Vikram Yadani. And don't forget to hit like, share, and follow Caveman and Counselor. Your feedback is invaluable to us, so please leave a review and let us know your thoughts on today's discussion. Well, welcome, Dr. Yudani, and tell us about um, you know, your background, your graduate school, all those important kind of things, um, and where, what you're doing today. Sure. Thanks for having me. Uh, I am a neurosurgeon, so I've been practicing in San Diego now for uh, about 12, 13 years. Um, neurosurgery is surgery for the brain and the spine, and I do both. So when it comes to surgery in the brain, it's for treating things like brain tumors, brain aneurysms, hemorrhages, strokes. And then in the spine, it's all of the issues that you hear about in terms of herniated discs or pinched nerves or spinal cord compression, uh, along with things like uh, traumatic injuries to the brain or the spine. So I kind of cover everything, which keeps things always exciting. I always say there's never a dull moment in neurosurgery. Uh, I grew up, uh, I was born in Chicago, but then mostly grew up in Los Angeles. And then I went away for school. I was in Philadelphia for college. Then I went to the Bay Area. I was at Stanford for medical school. That's where I met my wife. And then we moved back down to LA thinking we would settle down in Los Angeles. But we kind of got tired of it and ended up in San Diego. And we've been very happy here. In La Jolla, right? Terrible. Not a bad place to be. Not a bad at all. No, it's a great place to be. It's a great place to live. We have three children. We have two girls and a boy. Mm -hmm. They are 15, 9, and 11. Uh, so it's a great place to raise a family and to practice. Right. I've, I've really enjoyed practicing ah, mm-hmm. here in this community. What is your position? So I'm in private practice, so I have my own practice okay. or business. Um, mm-hmm. I'm on staff at multiple hospitals in San Diego, whether they're through the Scripps Health System or the Sharp Health System. I'm on staff at both sites. 
I also head up a neuro-oncology program. So since I was in training, I've always had a particular interest in brain tumors. And so I'm the director of a neuro-oncology program here in San Diego. Uh, so we see a lot of tumors. I feel like every year that I'm in practice, we see more and more tumors. And it's hard to say if that's due to something going on uh, in terms of the environment or exposure to something that's triggering more tumors, or are we just diagnosing them more Catching. exactly? Okay. So it's, it's really hard mm -hmm. to say. Um, yeah. But uh, ultimately, we do see a lot of tumors. We treat a lot of tumors. So that's kind of a, a niche within my practice. Yeah. And as I understand, I have a friend walking around with a brain tumor. It's very slow growing. His surgeon told him he doesn't really need to do anything. I guess that's not that uncommon. Um, but what are things that someone should be looking for just for any brain illness, brain health? What are the, the symptoms or things we should be looking for? So what's really interesting about the brain is that our brains can tolerate a certain amount of what I call insult to them. So whether it's a tumor, for example, it's amazing that I've seen patients where tumors will grow to a fairly large size and they will be amazingly asymptomatic or have no symptoms from it. And then all of a sudden the brain kind of gets upset and sends warning signs, whether it's a headache or a seizure or a TIA or some sort of speech issue the brain will kind of send out a warning saying, hey, something's wrong, you need to get checked out. But what amazes mm -hmm. me always when I see tumors, especially large ones, and some of them are slow growing, some are fast growing, and we can kind of talk about the differences. But what always amazes me is how the brain can really tolerate a certain amount of growth or mass or whatever you want to call it without triggering symptoms. And then all of a sudden something changes and the brain reacts. So for a slow growing tumor, like what your friend has, it's the type of thing that if it's fairly small and nowadays with the imaging, we can kind of get a good idea of what's benign, what's malignant. If it has a benign appearance and it's small and he doesn't have any symptoms from it, absolutely. It can be monitored. Monitoring mm -hmm. typically means we scan once a year, see if there's been any change or growth. And if there hasn't, we just stay the course and continue observation. As you see, you know, brain health and what what else is kind of on, is anything else on the rise besides tumors that we should be looking for? Uh, thankfully, when it comes to brain health in general, um, you know, with tumors, I think even though we are seeming to diagnose them more, or maybe the incidence is going up, you know, treatments are obviously present and are getting better, especially for the benign type of tumor, you know, typically with benign tumors that are surgically removable, once we remove them, rarely do we need to do anything else. Sometimes if we feel maybe we didn't get it all, then we'll follow up with some radiation. But nowadays with just the surgical equipment and techniques and instrumentation that we have in the operating room, brain surgery has certainly gotten a lot safer than it used to be even 20 or 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think something that was important for me, you know, I, I've mentioned here before that I did have a brain tumor removed by you um, a year and a half ago, and I've been doing great. Thank you so much. Um, and it was really, I, I can't tell you what a surprise the experience was because it wasn't at all as traumatic as I thought it was going to be. And I recovered very, very quickly um, back in the pool, not getting my head wet, but back in the pool right away. And it was just a really for, for what it was, it was fantastic experience. And, and thank goodness it was not cancerous. It was benign. So that was great. 
But I had been having for the longest time a little eye twitch. And I just kept telling myself, well, you know, it's stress, Kelly. And then I thought, you know, well, you know, I just kind of let it go for quite a few years and then eventually evolved into a hemifacial spasm. And I didn't realize it was a hemifacial spasm till my eye doctor pointed that out to me and asked me to go for an MRI. Um, and I would really say to people to not ignore those little symptoms and signs that you're having. You know, in this case, I'd had lots of different opinions. I did, I was very, we were very proactive. We talked to several different neurosurgeons, all really great, settled on Dr. Udani. Um, but really, you know, I would also recommend people take their time and interview different neurosurgeons if you're going to have brain surgery. There are different different things that are being offered, and I really felt what you had to offer, you had a lot more advanced techniques where you could really get in there and get out without doing much damage. And I don't seem to have any damage other than the nerve damage that I had pre-surgery. Yeah, you were so, a dream patient <laughs> because, oh, and you. I and I mean that because you know anytime someone's going through something major like this, you really you know have to have the right attitude and outlook, and you know you were always positive and you know had the right outlook and wanted to recover and do well, and it's amazing how much all of that makes a huge difference, yes. even for something like yeah. this, which you know we call it a benign tumor. It's still a tumor mm-hmm. in your brain. And it's serious stuff. And your tumor was right up against your brainstem, your facial nerve. I mean, there's some really sensitive structures in this area. And yeah, it was in my hearing. Exactly. It can affect your hearing Mm -hmm. nerve. Exactly. So all these things are at risk. So, you know, there's really no surgery in the brain that you can take lightly. Um, And some of these, you know, what we call benign tumors are in very uh, sensitive and delicate parts of the brain where even though the tumor is benign, the surrounding structures we have to treat with the utmost care and respect. And uh, fortunately, like, you know, obviously in your case, everything went great and we got it all out. Um, But like I said, you know, your attitude, your outlook really made you an ideal patient to go through something like this because it's not easy, as you know. I mean, even though, you know, Mm -hmm. we do things through smaller incisions and we say that they're less invasive or minimally invasive, we still have to open the skull and get in there and do work in the brain. And that takes its toll on the body. And if you don't have the right mindset, uh, it just makes the recovery harder. Yeah. Yeah. What I would say about that, I have a friend, Dr. Jane Gaunt. She's, she was on this show. She's wonderful. And Jane and I sat down a couple of times and talked about it because I really wanted to have a good visualization, a good outcome. And I'd say talking to somebody before surgery, I would highly recommend it. And the other kind of crazy thing I did, it seemed crazy at the time, but it made sense to me, is I actually worked with a personal trainer to get ready for surgery. Even though it wasn't going to be, you know, heart surgery or something like that, I just felt like the as strong as my body could be, it was just like one more thing I could do because there wasn't much I could do. I was going to turn myself right over to you and your team, and it's a kind of powerless experience. But I think if the patient is able to do some things so that you feel like, well, I'm doing my, my, my side of the street. I'm doing what I can do to have the best outcomes. And you know, going to a little personal training is never a bad thing anyway. So that just helped me. And my my PT and the PT and OT who saw me afterwards in the hospital were quite impressive with my climbing st- stair skills. <laughs> well, <laughs> you make proud. a really good point, and that is that yeah. you know the yeah. brain and the mind, the mind and the body 
are connected. Are one, it's, it's they are all connected. connected. Thank it, you. It's all connected. <laughs> it's all part of, you know, you. And uh, mm-hmm. there's a lot that you can do. I mean, I totally understand. Uh, and it's a privilege for us as surgeons that, you know, you give us that responsibility to, to take care of you. But uh, certainly, you know, you're under general anesthesia. You're completely asleep. You don't know what's going on. You don't know how you're going to wake up. You're go- you don't know if you're going to have any problems or deficits or complications. So it really is a, a, a privilege to get to, to operate on people from that standpoint. But certainly before and after surgery, there is absolutely a lot that you can do. And just simple things like getting your body in the right mindset, you know, being fit, eating healthy, uh, getting exercise, fresh air, breathing properly, all these things are really important both before and after surgery. And they really do make a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'd like to inter- interject just one second too, oh, that one point too. you're missing is, mm-hmm. is the relationship you have with the doctor and the, and the patient. Mm-hmm. Cause it was so easy for us to go in there and talk to you about it. And you realize the seriousness of it. And, but that the level of confidence and I mean that in the best possible way that you put put us at ease that this was we were able to get through this and Kelly was gonna be able to have the surgery and she'd have a, a good recovery and that that's so important than the relationship I, I think not only because I'm not one having the surgery but I'm the one that was uh, well maybe I'm a little bit of a fanboy because of mm-hmm. how well it went and and the the caliber of, of surgeon that you are I think so I think those are all the variables. Well, Kelly, you made a good point that I think it is important to, you know, get different opinions, talk to different people, because, you know, anything else in your life that's a big decision, you're going to probably talk to different people, right. get more than one opinion. So, yes, the <laughs> yeah. rapport is certainly important. You have to feel confident in your team, in your surgeon. Mm-hmm. And if you have that confidence going in, I do believe that that also makes a difference. Mm-hmm. I think so. Doing your homework. Um, is important. You know, I had I had one opinion was to do nothing, which I think in hindsight would have been a mistake. And another opinion was that they didn't think that they could do the surgery without leaving some damage. So neither of those made me very happy. Or or, the, or doing radio surgery as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So and again, those are I'm sure those are wonderful surgeons. But in my case, I think I made the right choice. Um, uh, what kind of what are some of the risks and challenges associated with just kind of a crazy question to say this this kind of brain surgery, but brain surgery in general, you know, what are what are the challenges that patients and physicians and surgeons face? So, like I said, there's no such thing as a small surgery. I mean, you know, sometimes amongst ourselves as surgeons, we'll say, you know, surgery is a chip shot or something like that, mm-hmm. and a lot of that is just mm-hmm. kind of you know machismo type talk but deep down deep down we all know that there's really no such thing as a chip shot operation because literally anything can go wrong uh in terms of brain surgery you know the things that we worry about are obviously injury to the brain so especially if for example in your case again you had a tumor in a very sensitive part of your brain near the brain stem the facial nerve the auditory nerve obviously if any of these structures get injured you can have devastating complications and Mm -hmm. uh consequences from that. So as a result, we have to be extremely careful. But uh, aside from damage to brain structures, we worry about things like seizures, hemorrhages, strokes, infections, all of these things can happen. So these are all, you know, risks for any sort of brain surgery. Now, fortunately, with technology and equipment and medications that we have, 
like I said earlier, surgery has certainly gotten much, much safer than it was when it first started, I think about 100 years ago. Uh, obviously, we've made huge advancements. No. So things can certainly be done much, much safer. And I typically say that, look, the risk of a major complication, for most brain surgeries, the risk of a major complication is fortunately less than 5% or so. So in most of the cases, we can get through the operation and the recovery with very low risk. But that being said, we can never take anything for granted. There's always some risk inherent to any procedure. Like I said, there's always a chance of something out of our control happening, whether it's an infection or a stroke. Sometimes these things happen, and that's why we have to always kind of warn patients that, look, I'm confident that this is going to go great, but there's always a small, small chance that one of these complications can happen. And that's the whole part of the what we call informed consent process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's important to pay attention to that 95%. As a patient going in, that we pay attention to that. Um, because, you know, obviously the clients that I work with, many have suffered with depression and with anxiety. Um, so frequently, it, they, they would tend to look at the 5%. And so it's very important if you tend to be a person with anxiety or depression, I think to really surround yourself with cheerleaders and people who are really going to kind of help you look at this in a, in a more pot appropriate light, not positive, more appropriate light. You know, when I went through a surgery, I chose not to tell people. I chose to tell my husband and my children, um, best friend, but generally I didn't want people to know, and, and, my, and my brother, who's, a, who's a, a neonatologist, obviously, to get his guidance. Um, but I didn't want to do that because I really was concerned about other people's input and what it would do to my well-being you know, people's worry and fear, because um, I tend to be somebody who takes into myself a lot of other people's feelings, very empathetic and therapist. So for me, that was the right choice. Other people, I think the right choice might be to find those really specific people who are really going to help cheer them on, especially Dr. Yudani, you know this, people coming in with depression, anxiety may come from families that tend to have a lot of depression, anxiety. If you have that in your family, be really super selective about who you're going to share this information with. You know, find a therapist, find um, some other people to help you, to, I would say to help the patient really, um, you know, see that 95%. Totally agree. And like I said, you even know. that 95% may be even low. It's probably, you know, more like 99% to be perfectly honest. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So it's funny over the years, you know, I've had patients that uh, sometimes go into surgery and I'll say, do you want me to call anyone afterwards? Uh, just to let them know that, you know, everything went well and that you're doing okay. Mm -hmm. And sometimes patients say, no, I haven't told anyone and I don't want you to call anyone. And then wow. there's other times where Literally, there's 30 people in the waiting room. So <laughs> yeah. it's... Yeah, it's not the right... It, it just depends on what's right exactly. for Exactly. Everyone is an individual. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I always say, look, whatever makes you most comfortable, whatever you feel is right, you have to feel comfortable with all your decisions. So... Yeah. You know, a really cool thing that you did um, that I heard about later, and I guess you've heard surgeons do now, is you let my family know how I was doing as surgery was going on. Yeah. So some of that depends on... That was so yeah, cool. Yeah, it depends on, you know, the flow of an operation. Obviously. So, you know, it's <laughs> yeah. funny, mm -hmm. certain operations, you know, it's kind of cut and dry, but for others, especially tumors, you don't really know how smoothly things are going to go. You know, some tumors are soft and come out easy. Others are really rubbery and are hard to, harder or a challenge to get out. 
Sometimes they're really stuck to important parts of the brain or, and are really uh, tedious or difficult to dissect away. So every operation kind of has a flow to it. And, you know, for the most part, things flow well and smoothly. And if they do, then usually, you know, we can have the nurses update family as things are going that, uh, you know, we're at this stage or we're closing, everything's going well. And uh, we try to do that. I try to remember to do that. Uh, sometimes it's hard because there's too much going on and, you know, it mm-hmm. slips my sure. mind. Yeah, it's important you're focused <laughs> right, on what you're but, doing. <laughs> but if things are going well, uh, yeah, I mm-hmm. certainly try to keep people updated just because, um, mm-hmm. you know, so these surgeries, they can take a while. And by the time people are out of the operating room in recovery, I mean, it can be several hours uh, and I can't imagine, you know, not knowing what's going on with your loved ones. So nowadays, you know, our teams really do try to make an effort to keep patients' families updated. Uh, and especially, you know, nowadays even there's newer technology with things like apps where you can kind of see progress being made. So those things are still kind of evolving. Mm-hmm. You know, what we talk about, about and you just hit the nail on the head it is one of the most frustrating things for me is that science uh, that insurance and, and government has discovered that the brain is an organ in the body and hence medical uh, mental health is now covered by insurance and it took us a while to realize that unless of course it is something like brain surgery and that people talk about the body brain connection and don't seem to understand that the brain is the body that part just it's an organ, <laughs> just like the heart. You know, I don't know why we have that differentiation. It's so interesting. Yeah, you? there shouldn't be. I mean, it's all it's all no. connected, and and we this is all stuff we've known. It's just funny how, you know, to get people to change the way they think just takes a long time, mm-hmm. and we're finally, I think, getting there where people are realizing that the mind and the body are all one. You can't, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the brain. Yes, it's an organ, but it's an organ that has emotion and controls things like depression, anxiety, mental health, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. all connected. Yeah, and regulates other organs in the body. Absolutely. Extremely important. Absolutely, you know, you know one yeah. of the biggest uh, roles of the brain is in hormone production. So our pituitary glands, which sit at the base of our brain, kind of right between our optic nerves, which control our vision, that little tiny gland, which is only about a centimeter or half an inch across, is responsible for producing a huge array of hormones that regulate all sorts of things in the body, whether it be mood or hunger or energy levels. So that's just one of the many obviously important roles that the brain plays, but it's amazing how by producing hormones, it really controls emotions and feelings throughout the entire body. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you mentioned hormones too, because um, one of the only negatives of my surgery is that I had to go off of my hormone replacement therapy um, because of, it was an estrogen-loving tumor is what you, you found out. So Greg got to live with a woman who immediately went off her hormone cycle. So that was super fun and probably continues to be super fun for him. Right, Greg? <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> What, yeah. what do you want me to say? <laughs> nothing. So <laughs> nothing, exactly, okay? nothing. It's, it's fine. <laughs> I've been an angel and absolutely perfect yes, through all yeah, of this. It's, it's me. Right. I'm sure it's me. Yeah, yeah. But what are some other other things that we need to think about? Hormones, anything else for brain health? Just like our, our the rest of our body, we talk about what to do for cardiac health. Same kind of things. Well, would you assume? mentioned the hormones, and that's it's that's kind of more of a recent finding that we've learned that, that certain tumors in the brain of all places 
can literally grow or respond to hormones. So for example, your tumor in particular had an estrogen receptor on it. So the estrogen literally was feeding the tumor and allowing it to grow further or more rapidly. And so obviously once it's removed, we have to take you off of that hormone replacement, which we don't, you know, hope maybe in the future we'll have some sort of substitute that acts like estrogen, but doesn't stimulate tumor growth. I mean, that's kind of, mm -hmm. you know, the holy grail there. Um, yeah. But other than that, you know, I think nowadays we really place an importance on diet and I really can't uh, emphasize enough how important diet is for brain health. Um, you know, we know that eating healthy is good for your body and your heart and, you know, controlling plaque in your blood vessels and things like that. But I would say it's just as important in terms of your overall brain health. And I think that more and more studies are being done in terms of the role of diet and kind of preserving brain function and preventing things like dementia, Alzheimer's from happening mm -hmm. later in life. So those are things that at this stage are still kind of under investigation, but I'm pretty confident that in the years to come, we're gonna learn more and more about the important role that diet plays in brain preservation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I worry about my kids with the. Well, we have an eating disorder program here, so I do worry about those those growing growing brains of these children, who are terribly under underweight, um, you know, not producing hormones anymore, no longer having menses. So I do worry about those kids. And if the other thing I could get kids to understand, it doesn't seem to be until about they're 20 or 21, they kind of get this idea that, you know, I just am not motivated. I don't want to go to school. I'm feeling kind of anxious. And then suddenly it might dawn on them, perhaps it's a cannabis. I'm <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, we've been talking about the cannabis for how long now? Like, it's the cannabis. <laughs> Why don't you see how it goes without the cannabis? <laughs> and finally they try not to, they get off the cannabis. Would you speak to cannabis and what you're seeing in brain health? Honestly, it's, it's very, I would say, understudied. Um, I yeah. think that, you know, certainly there have been studies in the role of cannabis as a treatment for things like anxiety or, for example, uh, cancer patients on chemotherapy uh, where they need some sort of sure. an appetite stimulant. There's certainly mm -hmm. a role for it there. These are things that uh, I would say, again, are still being studied. And uh, I mm -hmm. think that there is a medicinal role for cannabis uh, for certain conditions. Um, but in terms of, you know, when, how often, what doses, those things still need to be researched further and kind of teased out. Well, and to your point, doses, people are dosing themselves. Right. And they don't understand that typically we are seeing so much anxiety because of cannabis, because of, you know, cannabis overuse yes yeah, that's a, a side effect of it yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. well so it, it you were off. mentioning the mm -hmm. the brain body connection and kelly can you explain a little bit when we first see some of these kids come <laughs> in that are having eating disorders and they're malnourished they like lack executive function in their brain yeah start brain yeah yeah which is really it kind of really highlights the the, the connection between diet mm -hmm. and exercise and well, they don't have any, it, yeah, they it, have glucose. Yeah, they just, and it's, um, they lack the capacity to kind of use that portion of their brain. Yeah. And it's, and I'm, I'm a novice, but, you know, that leads to kind of this, this cycling down 
because because you're that that's not functioning your brain, and so different portions of your brain shut down. Yeah. The interesting thing about these kids, Craig, is they just have extraordinary brains, and we know one percent of the population can kind of follow anorexia. There seems to be one percent that has the ability to starve themselves and to continue to move on and and work. And these kids actually continue to have good grades. But oh, yeah. what they tell me afterwards is they tell me, well, and I'm curious, doctor, what you would say about this. They tell me that afterwards, um, it's just easier now. It's not so hard to learn. It's not so difficult. Um, would you speak about that, about undernourishment for my kids to listen to later about how that is affecting their brain, Dr. Yudani? Yeah. And so why what's food is interesting important? is the amount of energy the brain takes uh, as a percentage of our whole body. Mm-hmm. And off the top of my head, I can't remember, but it is a large portion. I think it's like 18 percent. Yeah, I was going to say 20 percent mm-hmm. uh, of our body's energy is used by our brain. So that's obviously a big amount. What's about uh, two to three pounds? The, the brain? brain itself? Yeah, mm-hmm. the weight. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, as a as a percentage of body weight, it's very small, right? I mean, mm-hmm. two or three pounds, that's only, you know, one or two percent of your body weight. But it's taking 20% almost of the energy that your body consumes. So that's a huge amount of energy that your brain requires. And obviously, if the brain is not getting that energy, then the neurons, which make up the brain, are going to suffer. And that can, in some severe cases, actually lead to long-term brain damage. So Mm -hmm. I would tell young kids, especially ones with eating disorders, that by not literally feeding their brain, they can not only starve their brain, but even damage their brain. And the long-term effects can really be disastrous. Mm-hmm. You know, as the brain unfolds as they age, um, is there a specific part of the brain that would be developing during this adolescence? You know, what's interesting <coughs> is that the whole brain develops until about the age of 25. Mm-hmm. So we used mm-hmm. to think that the brain stopped developing much earlier in life. But now we've kind of learned that the whole brain, and it's not just one particular part or area of the brain, but really the whole oh, brain is still developing until the age of 25. And and specifically, if you, you, know, if you really had to focus on one area, it would really be the frontal area. Mm-hmm. So the frontal lobes are what we call the prefrontal cortex, which is really responsible for things like intelligence, personality, behavior. And abstract thinking, correct? Yes, absolutely. Uh So Mm -hmm. all of these things are really developing until our mid-20s. So Mm. we really have to be careful that during that time, we not only nourish our brain properly, but also kind of keep it in a good environment. And by that, I mean... Aside from the nourishment, you know, just taking care of the body, you know, exercise and just being outside, fresh air. I mean, that's one thing that I worry about my own kids not getting enough of, especially now with things like computers and phones and social media. Obviously, they're not getting that outdoor experience the way, you know, prior generations have. So that's certainly something that you need to keep a close eye on. And then, of course, just the effects of, you know, being on a screen all the time, uh, Mm. you know, those are things that we don't really know yet. You know, it's all new. It's all stuff that really has developed in the last 20 years or so. So we don't really Mm. even know 
what yeah. are the long-term effects of, for example, too much screen time? You know, yeah. we say it's bad, but we don't really have a way to quantify how yeah. bad it really is. So yeah. those are things that, unfortunately, we're just going to learn as we go on. And I really encourage parents out there to take control. Those are your phones. Those are your devices. They do not belong to your children. To go ahead and make sure that you're controlling that and being really aware of what's happening with your kids. And those devices should be in the charger in your master bathroom of your master of your master bedroom um, at night so the children are not up late at night on devices, as we oftentimes see. The other thing I really want the uh, listener to understand is what the brain looks like, you know, and and how how fragile it is and what it sits inside of as we make decisions about how we move. That's a great question. And the answer is that the brain sits inside basically uh, the skull. So underneath our scalp, you know, underneath the skin, there's a little layer of scalp. And then there's our skull. Our skull is only about, I would say, a centimeter to a centimeter half thick. So obviously less than an inch thick, more like half an inch thick. Okay. And, and that's actually not a lot. Underneath the skull, there's kind of a sac. It's a membrane, which we call the dura. It's kind of like a lining for the brain. And what it does is it's just an additional barrier that protects the brain. And that dura is hardly a millimeter thick. So that's very small. That's really not protective in a mechanical sense. Mm -hmm. And then we have our brain. And our brains are soft. They are spongy. Uh, we kind of say that they're almost like tofu sometimes, uh, just because these are soft, very delicate organs. And even though we have, you know, the dura and the skull to protect our brains, our brains are not meant to undergo very serious trauma. So, you know, lately we've been seeing a lot of traumatic brain injuries uh, as a result of young people, especially being on things like scooters or e-bikes. Uh, or, you know, these uh, motorized scooters. And, uh, you know, a lot of times people have been drinking before they get on them and they're not wearing a helmet and they have really devastating head injuries. I mean, severe traumatic brain injuries as the result of just one bad decision. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as a parent myself, I always tell myself, tell my kids that obviously be careful, wear a helmet, uh, but really take all the precautions that you can, because even with a helmet, our brains are not meant to undergo repeated trauma. And, uh, you know, you look at uh, football players in the NFL and, you know, we're seeing more and more diagnoses of this entity called chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is basically just a fancy way of saying chronic brain damage from repeated blows to the head. And, you know, these guys are full grown adults wearing, you know, these pretty big helmets. But even then, our brains are not meant to undergo that sort of trauma. And if you think about it, the brain is kind of in a closed space. So the skull is a closed compartment. And any trauma to the brain literally causes that brain to kind of bang up against the inner part of the skull. And that can be really traumatic to the brain itself. So we have to just be extra careful and really in an ideal world, avoid head injuries altogether. And, uh, you know, whether it's sports related or from uh, riding a vehicle or device or something like that, uh, really, I can't overemphasize enough how important it is to really 
avoid any sort of trauma or injury to the brain, even if you're wearing a helmet. Obviously, helmets are great. They make a huge difference. They can be life-saving, but they are not perfect. And, you know, I've seen patients that were even helmeted and have still had severe brain injuries. The helmet probably saved their life, but it didn't prevent them from having, you know, serious other injuries uh, regardless. So, like I said, the brains are soft. These are very delicate organs. You know, I'm in awe every time I operate and get to open someone's skull and look at a brain. And it just, it, it just, it's such a fantastic, amazing organ. I mean, it's just amazing how evolution has produced this amazing organ. Um, and so every time I look at it, I'm in awe. Uh, but they are very delicate. You know, the skull itself, it's not enough. Even a skull with a helmet is not enough. And really the best protection is just to avoid injury or trauma to the brain altogether. Well, tremendous responsibility you have, doctor, as you open up people's brains, look at there's work on their spines, such delicate um, organs that you're working on, such important work that you're doing. So what would you, what do you do to take care of yourself? Oh, that, you know, <laughs> that's funny that you ask. So, you know, obviously I have a wife and three kids that mean everything to me. So spending time with them certainly keeps things in perspective. Mm-hmm. And then I have to take care of myself. Yeah. You know, I, I really try to practice what I preach. So I really do my best to obviously eat healthy, take care of my body, get fresh air, be outdoors. You know, we live in San Diego. We get to go to the beach and be in the ocean. And I really try to take advantage of all these things. Uh, because uh, ultimately it helps me take care of my own body and my own brain, which helps make me a better doctor and surgeon. Yeah. Well, and I can talk to you all day long. And one thing I really like people to leave lastly with is education. Learning is so important. And we know that a 20-minute bout of exercise at a certain high-intensity level really helps our brain put it into place, all the components needed for learning. Um, we've, there are studies showing that schools that have 20 minutes of exercise preschool before school starts with really getting kids heart rate, heart rates up. If that's dance, dance revolution or whatever the kids are doing, hopefully something fun and enjoyable, um, that we have better outcomes for learning. So what can you say about that as a, as somebody who, who works on the brain, what would you tell parents, um, that you'd like to see that you'd recommend they do so their children can have optimal learning as their brain is growing and developing. Absolutely. So what's really interesting about this particular topic is that we learn the most when we sleep. So all the things that our brains encounter in the day, uh, in school, in relationships, I mean, all of that really gets consolidated during sleep. And some people have hypothesized that really the main function of sleep is not so much for rest, but really for learning. And so, especially for a growing kid, and you know, I try my best to get my kids on to bed on time, but I can't under I can't overestimate or overemphasize the importance of sleep when it comes to learning. So really having, you know, even as adults, you know, we we kind of you sometimes tend to put sleep on the back burner and say it's not important, but you couldn't be farther from the truth. I mean, even as adults, we really need eight to nine hours of sleep. And for kids, they need even more than that. And uh, not only for, for rest, but also just for learning and kind of consolidating all the information that we've processed throughout the day. So for kids, especially that are in school and trying to get good grades, 
I can't uh, overemphasize enough the importance of sleep. We have a lot of kids, families out here really drive their kids quite hard with, you know, private schools and kind of have, you know, have the highest grades and whatnot. And so these kids are staying up late at night. And what you would say to them, it sounds like, is just put them to bed. Absolutely. I mean, you know, <laughs> because keeping them up all night or, you know, we used to show off in medical school that, oh, I oh, pulled yeah. an all-nighter, right? You know, that's the that's the worst way to learn anything, right? right. You, it may have gotten you through a test, but you didn't learn anything because right. everything you tried to learn that night, you forgot the next day after the test. Mm-hmm. There's no way your brain could consolidate that memory. So absolutely, you know, for, you know, for kids uh, or parents that are, you know, trying to encourage their kids or, you know, trying to get them to do well, keeping them up late is not going to help. So get them to bed on time, make sure they get, you know, a good eight, nine minimum hours of sleep. And even the parents themselves should be getting that amount of sleep because it's important for their health. Yeah. So if only medical schools would do the same and medical and residencies and whatnot would do the same (laughs) for their their upcoming doctors, right? I was just saying, I always find it so dichotomous that we know all of this stuff, but we're like the first ones not to use it. Yeah. You know, which is, I, I, I ultimately, I'm like, that's the human condition. It's just, we know better. Exactly. You are at, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, it, these are all things that I think we've known, uh, but we have to keep reminding ourselves, right. yeah, reminding each other. And medical schools are changing and, and residency. Yeah. So, you know, when I trained, there was no work hour limitation. So we were working, you know, 110, 120 hours a week, which was just absurd. You know, yeah. there's only there's only 168 hours in the week. So, you know, at its worst, I would go to work on a Monday morning. I'd work a 36 hour shift. So I'd come home Tuesday evening. I'd go to sleep, wake up the next morning, Wednesday, do it all over again. Wow. 36 hours, come home Thursday and then do it again on Friday. So this was being what we call being on call every other night. And not only was it bad for me, but I mean, that's not a good model for patient care, oh, obviously. Wow. Um, so that's changed, you know, so now there are rules and restrictions and limitations. And honestly, I think ultimately we're going to produce happier doctors uh, and that's going to yield better doctors. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for taking time away from your patients and especially time away from your family. Um, really appreciate that you came on to talk to us and educate our listeners. So um, I can't thank you enough. Greg, anything you want to say? No, just uh, I think he's an awesome guy <laughs> and really uh, admire the work that he does. And and I'm very, very grateful that that we've had such a great outcome. Mm-hmm. And well, Thanks for having me. This was really fun. This was a pleasure. Oh, absolutely. Hey, thanks so much for listening to today's episode of Caveman and Counselor, where we bring you a unique blend of professional insights and practical perspectives on behavioral health. If you like what you heard, please don't hesitate to share this episode with others. And don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date on future episodes. And hey, for those who'd like to support our work, we have a Patreon page where you can make a donation and gain access to exclusive content. Thank you for listening. Until next time, remember, take care of your mental health.